We'll just stop praying and we'll let the Lord strike them mute. Come out of the city. Lord, we thank you for our time this morning. We ask that you to bless our study. Let it be a fruitful time. Let it be a time that equips us for more holy thoughts, for more holy thinking, for more concentrated effort, uh, and that we may find a way to have all this fit in, um, correct what we, uh, to correct this, adjust the belief system that needs to be adjusted, if, if at all, and to celebrate the truths that we hold so dear. Amen. So, last week, the last thing we just sort of talked about, as we continue through our study in the Old Testament, well, as we begin to, as we begin to continue, uh, was man as, as God's image bearers, right? That was the last thing we talked about, and, and, and sort of what that means. Okay, uh, somebody sum that up for me. What, what does it mean? To, what first and foremost, no, set aside the attributes of God, other than being holy, and what does it mean to bear God's image? Because if we don't get this right, we miss the whole function of the entire Bible. Oh, good. I'm, so, I'm glad so many people are silent on it. It's excellent. What? Who? Remember? Go ahead. Um, we have like I don't want to say emotional characteristics, but like we have a a thought and and he thinks and we have love and. And what does that enable us to do? So we have God's attributes. What does that enable us to do? Maybe that's a better question. Be His representative. Yeah, right. To be His representative. To be His. As as he said, he 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 put us there to rule. He puts a rule in his place, or sort of alongside him, or as his, as, as you know, the good word vice regent. I think is a great word, it's a good old word, vice regent, sort of vice rulers, right? Now, <clears throat> so that's what we're here for, and we we looked at, at the very end, at the very end of uh, uh, Revelation last week. We read this verse about the fact that man will reign with him forever. Okay, at the very end of the Revelation, we see, and man shall reign forever and ever. Okay, so not surprisingly. God succeeds, right? Now we're, we're, we're finding out how that started and how we got there. We want to note, in, in uh, particularly Genesis 1-11, to that after everything God did in the creation week, He said, Behold, it was good. What, what's the significance of good? How is that being used, does anybody know? What's the significance of God created everything and saw that it was good? What is that, what is that pointing to? Based, and remember, sort of based on that, our discussion last week might help you with that a little bit. What so, God does pleases God. I, well, it certainly does, yes. Remember we talk, yes. Reflection of His goodness? Uh, well, yes, because, right, and, and certainly His perfection. But remember what we talked about in the ancient Near East, in the ancient mind, creation was much more concerned with the form and function that God was giving to something. Okay? It was assumed, of course, that God made all the material stuff. That was a given. Way back in Genesis 1 1, or, or however, some people like this. Put that space between one and one two, and, and, and one two. But <clears throat> to create something, as we mentioned, we talk about when we make a computer, or we make a car, or we make something for the yard, or whatever it is we're making, we're really not said to have made that thing until it's 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 useful in doing what it's supposed to do, right? So in that case, and when when God said it was good, and, and remember we talked about the fact too that God was gonna what He was building was His great cosmic temple over which He was gonna rule His kingdom. He was creating his kingdom and establishing his rulership over that. And so when he said it's good, basically everything's in place. Everything's exactly as it needs to be. All the conditions are set. Everything's just like it needs to be for, for this thing to go off exactly as God has in mind. Now, of course, God knows it's not going to go off, right? God knows the beginning from the end. And he knows things are going to turn south really quick. 
Uh, I like the way that Mike Heiser in his book, The Unseen Realm, wraps this up. Interesting book, by the way, uh, Unseen Realm. Um, we probably wouldn't agree with everything, but a lot of it is very interesting because it gets us thinking in terms of what is the unseen realm? What are we not seeing? What goes on behind the scenes? What's going on in the spiritual world? Anyway, just so we can set the stage once again for what the Bible is about, right? Because remember, we, 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 we called the Bible, the story of the Bible, a particular thing. And he sums it up thus. The story of the Bible is about God's will for and rule for the realms he created. Visible and invisible. Visible and invisible. Through the images, imagers, he created human and non-human. This divine agenda is played out in both realms in deliberate tandem. So what he's saying here is God, <coughs> God's, uh, the story of the Bible is all about God's will for the, in, in the rule of his creation. And that goes on through the visible and the invisible. Us, uh, what we see in front of us, and the spiritual. And there are a lot of spiritual, there's a spiritual agency going on in the world that was very much opposed to God. Right? Adam and Eve did not represent the first presence of evil in the garden. Right? Evil existed before Adam and Eve sinned. Obviously. Anyone trying to attempt somebody to go against God is evil. Right? So whatever goes on before Genesis 1, 2 and all that other stuff and everything that might have happened. When was the, uh, you know, when, when was the demonic created? What happened? Was there a fall of Satan? Uh, I think Isaiah refers to it as, as the king of Tyre. I mean, all that stuff, what we need to understand is there are both spiritual beings and there are God's humans that are supposed to be ruling, supposed to be taking care of what he does. And we see that that's not the case. John Walton said the Eden mandate calls us to keep God's sacred space pure. So if God takes Adam and Eve, they put them in the garden, they tell them to work the garden. Well, that wasn't just a landscaping job, okay? That's all language for a lit. This is God's sanctuary. This is sort of the, what someone called the archetypal sanctuary. This is God's space. This is all God's sacred space and he puts man there to protect it in the garden. Evil never should have gotten in the garden. And I think we can assume obviously evil existed. The serpent obviously gets his way in, right? So, that's in, really we're called for the same thing today. We're called to keep the, the church pure. God's people. God's temple. God's residence. Pure. Holy. Be holy for I am holy. Mark. Was, that, was that part of uh, Adam's failure was to keep uh, uh, Failed to keep Satan out of the Absolutely. He was supposed to, again, maintain that sacred space. He was representing God, right? So, would God want that foul thing going through trying to upset his creation? No. And he put man there to do part of what God does. Same reason as you and I doing what he did. We, we represent him in the church to one another. We also represent him to the world. This is his creation. This is his world. This is my father's world. Um... God had put Adam in the garden to keep it, which is, again, very much language for priestly duty and priestly service. It was image-bearing stuff. It was vice-regent, vice-ruler activity stuff. Take care of this garden. And, and, of course, they let evil in, right? And so, this is going to be this long battle between good and evil, right? Between what goes on with, you know, the serpent comes in and deceives. And, and so, God, when God addresses that wrongdoing, when he speaks to... Uh, both the serpent and to the man and the woman and gives them the respective uh, things that he's going to do. We know that there's going to be some heel biting and there's going to be some serpent head stomping going on. And that's not just a reference to one day, you know, 2,500 years down the road. That is the ongoing struggle between good and evil that is going to persist. And, 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 and now, obviously, these people had no sense that this was... Uh, it, you know what's interesting? 
you know, in theology they call this the Proto-Evangelion, which basically is just the pre-gospel, so to speak. And yet not once is this entire thing referenced again in the entire Old Testament. There's not a specific reference given to Genesis 3.15 about the serpent and, and all that stuff happening. Not once. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, so we, I mean, we see all kinds of stuff happening that is obviously indicative of the fact that there's this great evil going on, but we never see a reference to Genesis 3.15 feeding messianic expectation. We, we never get the sense from Scripture that that verse is what the Israelite people continue to hold on to when they thought of a, a conqueror. By the way, what was? What does become? This will get addressed later. What does become the, um, the source of hope? What's the great messianic expectation? How's that going to happen? Through whom? Abraham? Yes, but specifically, who's the, who's the Messiah king type that everyone is expecting at some point? What is it? Yes, thank you, David, right, yes. So it's always back to David. What, now again, of course, that is the sort of highlight to, that is the, um, that is God's mention of evil and good, and we know that good is going to ultimately prevail, but we see that set in motion here in the garden. So we know that there's going to be resistance to God's rulership until such a time, right? Until such a time. But it's, and so, and we know that, of course, that Scripture is progressive. And I say all that to say that we get a lot more out of Genesis 3.15 necessarily than they did. But it still meant something to them, right? It still meant something to them. How? Isn't it hard to stop and think that we don't communicate the way they did? They didn't find stuff out from each other real fast and real often. They didn't pick up the phone and say, Whoa, did you hear about that? Okay. So, despite all things being good, right, man fails. The serpent deceives. He lies to him. And this spiritual being who is bent on interfering with God's rulership over his kingdom. Adam and Eve also push back on God's rulership. They want autonomy to determine for themselves what is the way to live. Right? They want to decide for themselves what is good and evil. God said that. He said, oh man, look what they've done now. Look what they've done now. They were told to stay away from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is basically just what it takes to function in a relationship with God. God told him, he said, oh, this is a cautionary. Don't do this. This is going to wreck everything. Then they go ahead and do it. They believe the servant. They, they, they distrusted God. But they want so. And, and again, the rest of Scripture is the same story. Man insisted upon his autonomy, his way of doing things, to some degree self-sufficiency. So they get cut off, right? They, get, uh, they refuse the relationship that God intended to be the means of ruling in his kingdom through them. So that they can't be his image. They can't fully be his bearers of his image if they're not going to do it in the way that he prescribes. It doesn't work. So they get cut off from the tree of life. Right? God says, now, now we're going to have to do something. Because now, and it's funny, he doesn't even complete this sentence. He says, lest they, lest they put their hand forth and take from the knowledge of it, and take from the tree of life. And basically become immortal and, and irredeemable in a way, and they're evil. God had to cut them off from that tree of life. It's a little bit indicative of killing sin, maybe, a whole bunch of maybe little weird things going on there. But without access to that tree of life, they're also, they, 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 they're really going to experience their mortality, both physically and spiritually. Right, and they're going to begin to experience death. The relationship with God is going to be fractured. Human relationships are going to be a mess, and they're only going to keep getting worse. I mean, this is the genesis of family dysfunction, and we're going to continue to see family dysfunction throughout the Old Testament. Human beings were a mess. 
we are we are just a mess. And family dysfunction, of course, that's when you messed up your relationship with God. The first place it's going to get show up after that is family. And notice that they ran and hid. Notice that they ran and hid. And how did God respond to that? So we talked about as we go to these, we want to study basically three things as we try to comprehend the Old Testament. God's rulership of His kingdom, how man responds to that, how, God, how man responds to God insisting on His rulership, and how man treats God's kingdom, and then how God responds to man's response, right? So we're trying to make sure we at least cover those three things, because those are like the big 10,000 foot view things, right? And then we see it in all the little details of how stuff happens, right? So how, how does God respond to their running and hiding? How does God respond to their sin? He looks for it. Yeah, He does. Isn't that a gracious thing? I mean, he said in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. He could have just left them, right? But instead he goes after them so that he can confront them with what they've done. Uh, You begin to get the sense that God certainly knew when he created people what was going to happen and how they would have to learn about him. It's almost as if, well, it's not almost, obviously God built into the universe and equipped people with the potential to rebel. And so somehow that potential to rebel, whatever that is, is a necessary function of what it means to be a creature. So you have freedom of choice? Yeah, yeah, there's certainly a sense of freedom of choice. Which I don't think we have anymore, because uh, it's taken by sin. Yeah, I mean, that's another huge thing, the theologians, right? I mean, so, so you got you got Martin Luther uh, going against, you know, uh, uh, Erasmus. Desiderius Erasmus back in the, you know, the, the, the middle centuries, right? Erasmus, Luther wrote the bondage of the will, and what well, did Erasmus write? Uh, the freedom of the will, or something like that. And uh, yeah, James White did a good book on that as well. Um, so God responds in mercy and grace, and, and, and He comes to them, and He also gives them. He's got to send them out of the garden, right? They, they can no longer image Him correctly. They can, they, they can no longer they dysfunction. They're no longer functioning. Okay, if He could just send them out there, sort of with their little fig leaves. <laughs> right? <laughs> he, he, he kills some animals, right? And he gives them a protective layer, alright? Now, again, there are those that want to say that that, that somehow uh, is some sort of a. You know, God's going to eventually have to kill an animal to cover man's sin. And maybe we can look at that and see that. Uh, I know that there are those that would. I, I think. I think that's going to happen, obviously, when we get to the sheep and everything else. But what else could God possibly do to cover them at that point? Unless he's going to just cover them in leaves and everything. But it certainly does show the nature and character of God to do what's necessary to make up for what is lacking in his image bearers. Which is ultimately going to lead to Christ. Right? He could have covered them with hair and they could have became monkeys. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Says Charles Darwin. Right? Wow. Yeah. So, but, so, so regardless of all this, right, right, ruling and subduing is, is, is still going to take place. It's, it's still what I say, ex nihilo. And if you remember that phrase, ex nihilo, that means out of nothing, right? So God could create the physical matter out of nothing. He didn't need any pre-existent stuff. But likewise... His rulership, his rulership is also, and his plan is an ex nihilo thing. He doesn't need man to accomplish by man's self this whole image bearing project, this whole God's cosmic temple, man in the sanctuary of God, and all this stuff. 
He doesn't need man to succeed independent of God in order for that to happen. Which is completely different, by the way, than the surrounding nations, which we talked about a little bit. We'll come up a little bit more probably. I don't know where Todd's going in Exodus. I mean, I know obviously generally where he's going. Um, and you will have two weeks for that one, by the way. It's just Genesis and Exodus will take two weeks since they're so foundational. So ruling and subduing will take continued work of God. And now we have, now what happens next? So now we have Cain and Abel, right? And what do we learn there? Sin is lurking at the door. Cain. Again, people get bogged down a little bit in the whole well. He bought, um, he bought vegetables and the other one brought, brought, brought an animal and that's why God... No, it doesn't matter what they brought. It's very clear that God was not pleased with Cain's heart. Right? Cain was not able to present a good sacrifice. That's how I remember the two of them. <laughs> that's how I remember who's who. Cain was not able to bring a good sacrifice. Right? But he says, be careful. He says, if you do well, great. But if not, sin is working at the door. It wants to have dominion over you. But you must master it. Right? So that's how God's saying, this is how my, this is how my kingdom works. This is how you... I know what you're about to do, Cain. I know what you're thinking. You want to kill your brother. But this is how it works. You've got to subdue that. You've got to master over it. Now, Adam already failed at it. No reason to believe Cain's going to succeed because Adam failed. Right? Adam failed to, to, to not master it. But now it's even a little more obvious. Right now, whatever's happened in the, preve- in, in the prevailing time, this, this development of sort of the human character, the Cain can't do it. And then we see violence continue to increase, so much so that over in Genesis chapter 4, verses 24, you've got this egghead named Lamech, right? Look at this guy. Look at how he boasts. Over in 424. Uh, well, let's go back to 23. Lamech said to his wives, Adan Zalah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold, right? That seventy-sevenfold number that comes up. I am just going to be... He's just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm reading a book right now, and it, it references this, um, what you just said. It's, mm. it's like a song. Really? And it's like the first gangster rap. Gangster rap! <laughs> That's beautiful. It is gangster rap. So this is, this is what's happening. Violence is increasing. Now again, can't get bogged down in the details. Don't want to get bogged down in the details. How did, Andy, how did Adam and Eve have just a couple of kids and all of a sudden this happened? Where did all these wives come from? Not going to get bogged down in all that. Interesting discussion, but not, not going to get bogged down. And this brings us up to Noah, right? Now with Noah, God basically does a reboot. Okay? He's going to throw the world back into the, in, into the chaotic mess that it was. He's going, to throw, he's going to let water do its thing again. Remember the chaos back in the, in the, after, after the creation of the universe, right? Everything was, was, was without form, right? It, 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 the earth was without form and void. It was chaotic. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, right? Because that's, that's what things had to happen. We talked about the chaos of the sea, right? Remember we talked about that and how important that an element in all the theology of the ancient Near East was. All of the mythologies, all of them focused on this powerful sea. This whole, so what does God do? Brings it all back to that same pre-Edenic state. He'll start over with Noah, who was, comparatively speaking, righteous. And comparatively speaking, again, blameless in his generation. Now, we don't know anything about how people related with God. We get nothing in the text, right? Noah was honoring God. Noah was righteous. You know, what does that mean? There was no written commands, all this stuff. Is it law in the heart? Again, but, so he, he's basically, again, he, his, he, he will rule his kingdom again, starting with Noah. And so what happens, Right? 
And again, let's not get bogged down in 6, 1 through 4, right? Where it says, uh, we start getting into the, uh, the Nephilim come, and, and who were the sons of God? Again, were the angels? Were they the noble line of, were they the noble line of Seth? By the way, no New Testament writer ever references the noble line of Seth. Ever. No, I don't know where people came up with that idea, but it doesn't show up anywhere in the New Testament thought. But even if it is so, even if that is, so what? What's the big deal? The big deal is every thought and intention of the heart was only evil. Right? And that's why God basically was going to just do this sort of reboot. So Noah walks with God. He didn't do it perfectly, but he walks with God. Uh, so, so God's going to save Noah from destruction in his family, and he covenants with him to do so. Okay, He makes a particular covenant with that. right? He says, this is what I'm going to do. And it's very similar. You're going to be blessed. You're going to multiply all that stuff. Right? Interesting, too. The ark... I forget who made this point. It was an interesting point. The ark has no, 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 no navigational equipment on it. Right? No, you, don't, you don't read about a steering wheel or a rudder or anything. What is, what's that te- what is that significant? <laughs> Why is that significant? Because God knew where he was going. Yeah, man! God's driving that ship. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yep, you got to listen sometimes to the Gaithers sing the old gospel ship. What a great song it is. Going to take a trip on that old gospel ship. I'll soon be sailing through the air. So, um, so, 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 and God's going to rule. Now we begin to see a little more clearly. God's going to be using covenants to rule His kingdom. And I know there's a whole book written on it. Seth asked me if I read it. It's a really good book. And when he teaches on, I think he's doing Ruth and Esther. You'll get some material from that, which is good. Uh, it's called Kingdom Through Covenant. Right? So, anyway, so, so, so we get a little hint here of how God's going to be executing His will and ruling His kingdom. He's going to do it. Through, he's going to have to do it through covenants. He's basically going to have to do it by saying, "This is what I'm going to do," which makes perfect sense, right? Uh, this is how it's going to happen. I'm going to do this, 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 and this. Mm-hmm. So, how does it all work out? You can go through this, all the stuff that happens with the ark and what are the birds mean and all that. But most importantly, what happens? Noah gets drunk and passes out naked. In no time, he gets a vineyard, much like Adam. He's putting a, a, in a garden to tend to it and everything, right? So he gets a vineyard going. He gets hammered. He passes out naked, and his shame is exposed to his son, who should not have looked upon it and did. And, 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 and there we are. So we get a real clear picture that the Noah thing is going to work out so well. <laughs> right? We get a great promise from God. He's not going to destroy the earth again by flood and all that. And which basically means... I, I, I'm not going to do that. Why? Because I can't count on man to keep his part of the covenant like that again. I, I gave a covenant. I can't count on man to do it. So I, I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm not wiping the whole earth up again this way, which, written between the lines, is you are going to continue to fail and resist my rule. Yes? It just proved that man is incorrigible. He certainly is. Yep. And woman even more so. And so anyway, as I would know, um, the Tower of Babel. Let's kind of get to sort of, sort of the next, next event. Um, oh. You know, there's a number of events, right? But there are there are um, there are events in Genesis that are just clear sort of delineators of what's so key that we need to see going on here. So in eleven four, right, of Genesis, we see <clears throat> uh, these Babylon fools say, Come, let us build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So what's sort of going on here? How, how is this? Make a name for ourselves. I mean, think of how that's opposed to the rulership of God. I mean, doesn't that just sort of smack of we're on our own or we'll do our own thing? We're going to make a name for ourselves, right? 
Now, it's interesting to note, we want to know what, what's this Tower of Babel like. Again, you've got to go back to the ancient Near East culture and find out what are these, and this would be a form of what's called a ziggurat, right? Z-I-G-G-U-R-A-T, or ziggurat, okay? And basically, these were things that were built, and they were designed in such a way that there was a stairway of, 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 of sorts incorporated into this structure so that the gods could come down and be with the people and, and get the food they needed, in some cases, right? Because they needed things from the people. The gods had to come down in mythology and get stuff from the people. Because man was serving the gods that way. Okay? So, uh, John Walton writes, the offense in this passage, then, this whole idea of building such a structure, is to be found in, in and this is why it's, I think it's so important, this is why it's one of these key features, it's to be found in beliefs that resulted in the project and what it stood for in the minds of the builders. So what were they thinking? It went beyond mere idolatry. It degraded the nature of God by portraying Him as having needs. Okay? It, it's no longer humanity that's being corrupted. It is their view of deity that's being distorted and twisted beyond recognition. So now here by Babel, they, they just don't even understand what it means. It, it, it's like the monotheism that they were sort of in. Whether they would have known it to, to call it that at the time is no longer meaningful. They have... They are so... This is the cost of rebellion in general, right? Uh, at some point we see God does give people over to a reprobate mind. But God does let us result the full weight at times of our thinking. Ideas have consequences. Which is why we see Paul say, we take, you know, we're casting down speculations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing it into captivity. Every thought to the obedience of Christ. That has to do with philosophies. That has to do with worldviews. I know we tend to apply it to individual sin, but in its context, its immediate context, it has to do with this kind of thing. So God came down all right. <laughs> God came down all right, and he dispersed them and confounded their language and, and spread them across the nations. All right? um, again, Mike Heiser does nice work, with it, nice work with this. He talks about God giving them over to the other Elohim, the other lesser gods, right? the other spiritual beings that, that you know, God does put certain spiritual beings in charge of certain geographies and that these 70 nations represent all of the nations of the earth at that time. Real interesting stuff. Um, and so we see a pattern. We see this pattern, right? That God sends men to partner with him in ruling in a way that's consistent with God's revealed way for doing things. Man produces his own plan and then God disperses man. This happened in the garden. It happens in the earth with the flood. It happens in the Tower of Babel. God says, I'm going to do thus and such a thing, put some certain restrictions in place so that the thing works. Man comes up with his own plan or welcomes a plan from some other being other than God, and then God sends man out, sends him out of the garden, <laughs> sends him off the, the, the land, the face of the earth, wipes it out, okay? Sends the people of Babel. We've got God consistently doing so. Now, so now what's going to happen, right? So that, that brings us to Genesis 1 through 11. And we pick up in Genesis 12 through 50. Abram. Okay, we get to Abram now. One of the dispersed, right? Obviously, everybody was at Babel. God comes down and disperses them. So his family, however they were, ended up sort of being part of that dispersed groups of people up wherever he was over there in probably modern-day Iraq. God's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to take Abram's... He, he's going to make Abram's name great. Whereas the Babels said, we're going to make a name for ourselves. God says to you, I'm going to make you a great name. And I'm going to make you a great nation. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed for you. That's God's plan now for his kingdom and his rule through this person, Abraham. Okay? 
and we get a foundational covenant with Abraham. And it's basically God's I do it all promise. <laughs> right? It's just God saying, this is the only way this works. Right? This is the only way this works. In the movie with, uh, years ago there was a movie out with uh, Oh God with, with John Denver and um, George Burns, right? And, and, and remember, uh, George Burns has to go into court as God, right? And he's supposed to swear an oath, you know, so help me God. And he says, so help me me. Right? That's, that's what God's doing in this. God says, this is going to happen. There's going to be a seed. It's going to be Abraham. There's going to be a covenant I make, a promise, a commitment I make to Abraham and to his seed. So help me me. I'm going to do it. And we see that in the cutting of the animals. We see it again in Hebrews where, you know, we read about, you know, God said, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of, his, of the promise the unchangeable nature of his purpose interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it was possible, impossible for God to lie, we may take refuge. We, we, may take, we may take that confidence as people that seek that refuge in Christ, that anchor. And so, this is, this is God just, just committing himself to his purpose again. And, and man still has a role in it. He's still going to make that happen. Nothing's changed. Man hasn't upset God's plan to have his rule, to have his kingdom, to have everything done through his image bearers. So, <clears throat> Uh, Genesis 12, this is where God first tells him this. Uh, you know, get out of there. I'm going to make you a great nation, etc., etc. Um, and then we get to Abraham, uh, we get to Genesis 15, where Abraham's wondering what's going on, and God says, hey, it's, you know, go, go out and look up at the stars. What, what a great way to say, you, you don't think this can happen? Let me tell you, come out, Abraham. I don't know how old he was at that point, 75 or something. Come on, look up at the stars. That's what you're going to be like. And I think there's a sense in which. He used, God used nature at that point in the overwhelmingness to say, do you doubt that I can do this? Look at what I do. Look at what I do. Okay? I don't think it was just a matter of God trying to give him some sort of a numerical comparison to the number of people that are going to follow him. Okay? I think he's making a very important point. I'm the God that does this. Okay? Now it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. What does that mean? Well, let me ask more in particular. Is this a soteriological statement? Oh, by the way, what is soteriology? How a person is made right with God, right? How a person is quote-unquote saved. So there's no language in here about sin. There's no language in here about rebellion against God. This isn't about... This isn't saying Abraham believed God and he was saved from hell and destruction and everything else. What does it mean, you suppose? This is very foundational, and it's it's related to that in a way, but it's not it's not, it's, it's not what it means here. Well, yeah. It's similar to our having faith in Christ makes us righteous, and he had faith in God, so that made him righteous. Yeah, I mean, it, it's basically a way of, when, when when he was declared as righteous, what he was saying, you're, you're in a right standing with me. You're in a, you're in a right relationship with me. And our faith in Christ is the same kind of faith in God that Abraham's faith is, right? And and if there was a um, and, and so in the progressive unfolding of Revelation and we see how things are going to work out with Christ and all that, right? Abraham's faith is like the faith that saved us. It's our, it's our relationship to God. It's, it's how we relate to Him. Will we trust and believe Him or not? Right? Now, even though that's the, the case, right? Abraham's faith, again, can be like ours as well. Abraham stumbled a little bit. He really did. He wasn't this giant 
I mean, he was a giant of faith, right? I mean, he, he did things. He did the thing with Isaac, right? He, he, and, and I think I think part of us, what we have to remember is when it says that he believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So yes, God knew he believed him at that moment. But when do we really believe? When do we see Abraham's belief? We certainly don't see it in the following couple of chapters. He has to lie about his sister again. He does that for a second time. He gets all messed up with the whole Hagar thing and all that stuff. And, you know, his wife gives him Hagar. So he's not, you know, he's trying to do things. They're trying to do, they're trying to hurry God's plan along a little bit. When do we really see Abraham's belief strong as, as it's declared to be here? How do we see that he really is in right relation? What, what are the works that demonstrate his faith? Yeah, yeah, right? I think even more indicative was the night before he went to do that, he slept. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, I mean, it's that whole event, right? Um, he knew that the book of Hebrews tells us, he knew that God, he figured in his head, he did the math. He said, well, God's obviously going to bring him back from the dead. That's what Hebrews says. That's what he, that was the math. That was his calculus. He said, well, God's able to rise, raise people from the dead. Okay, so, um, yeah, that was the big moment. That was the big sort of magical moment, you know. Well, God, see, wow. God gave him an indication of that when him and Sarah actually conceived a child. Because he said his body was as good as dead. It sure was, yeah. Sure. It was as good. Think about it. Yeah. One of the interesting things about that, too, is at that point in time, he's an old man, and mm-hmm. Isaac's a young, strapping young yep. man that could easily overpower him. Yeah, yeah, that is yeah, interesting, isn't it? Yeah, wow. Yeah. Well, on the other hand, I said, man, if this this dude was able to impregnate my mother at age 80, I'm going to back off. That's a man's man right there. I ain't going to scrap him at all. Yeah, no, I think I think there's so many things like that. He could write little additional narratives and stories about, you know, which would be really interesting, you know. And it, it be neat if, and I'm sure some people do that, but it be neat if people did that. Uh, you know, take those little things and, see, and get creative with them. Within, again, the, the confines of Scripture. But, you know, Abraham believed God and that made Abraham an image-bearing partner in establishing God's kingdom and God's ruling over his, 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 his kingdom. That's the kind of human God had in mind when he made humans, right? Though, of course, not, not perfectly at this point because we're already in the fall, right? I mean, Adam and Eve, just like all the other creatures, produced after their kind, which means they produced sinners. However that works. But Abraham here is demonstrating that this is, this is what we can expect will take over the course of time a fulfillment of this is how it's going to happen. This is the story. The promise is made to Abraham and his seed, which of course is Galatians. What's ultimately, what, do we, what do we ultimately talk about when we say Abraham and his seed, Christ, right? The, the book of Galatians specifically says that uh, Jesus Christ was Abraham's seed. He's, so the promise was made to Abraham and all uh, to Christ, who's going to be the one that is better at being Abraham than Abraham is. That's why he could say, before Abraham was, I am. I think that doesn't mean just in terms of age. I think it means in terms of relationship to God and everything. Right? Um, so Abraham and, and Sarah, they did struggle with some of the particulars, didn't they? Again, the whole wife is the sister, the Hagar instead of Sarah, the whole laughing at God thing. And so, what we're seeing here that God is going to accomplish His purpose. He's going to do it and work through our trust and our faith. But it's, it's going to be, a, a, at times, look like a, a kind of a silly game, right? And in some ways, God shows His power to Abraham. 
so that Abraham knows he's not on his own in all this. Well, boy, Isaac is a good example. You know, God meets with Abram under the oaks of Mamre, you know, in that little theophany that went on there. God preserves his life. God does a lot of things in his life that shows and continues to show him his trust is very well founded. Right? And don't we all need that? I mean, I need... I think we all need trust boosters. <laughs> right? If I, could, if I could steal a little bit from the vaccine maniacs. But we all need little trust boosters, don't we? And we get that from our life in Christ. We get it from the church. We get it from the scriptures. All kinds of little things God gives. So Abraham is sort of like the righteous reckoning belief in action. Right? He's righteous reckoning belief in action. That's what we see. A person that's in relationship with God. Okay? Again, not depending on Abraham to do anything but trust. God can't trust for him. Right? I mean, God can't trust for him. It has to be Abraham's trust. So, so we go forward a little bit. Isaac and Rebekah, right? Through Abraham's family, God will bless, multiply, etc., etc. But now things get real weird in the family again. Things get really crazy in the family, right? Isaac loved Esau. Rebekah loved Jacob. There's a problem. There's a problem. And each of them knew it. Each of them knew it, right? Uh, God had told them in advance that there are two nations in, in your womb. So God's going to make a distinction, isn't he? That's what God does. When you, you do that when you're God. So even that little verse where God says, there are two nations in your womb. Okay, he says to her, Rebecca. Well, <clears throat> God is already going to make a distinction. Okay? God does it his way. The older shall serve the younger, which is unusual. God will accomplish this through the favoritism of the mother and the father. Another example how we see God, and we'll see that get its uh, fullest expression in the end of Genesis. Okay? So here we have Jacob the deceiver, and that's what his name means, is deceiver. Alright? And we have we have all kinds of family trouble. Time goes on, right? So Jacob's out of there. But now Jacob gets four wives. Right? Well, two wives and a couple of concubines. <laughs> so, I mean, they're constantly one's coming to him, this one's coming to him, this one's going, you know, I'll give you some of my mandrakes, which was like maybe an aphrodisiac in their mind. All this weird stuff going on. All these game plan, all this manipulation, all this trickery, all this envy going on. In the midst of God developing this family... This, this family from Abraham, again, through whom he's going to bring about his plan, his, his rule, his, his kingship. Right? It was the Esau despising his familial birthright. Right? That's not the kind of person God's going to use to establish his covenant with. He, he despised his spiritual blessing. I was listening a little something on the way in today. There's a discussion on, you know, uh, this guy wrote a book. I think something like... Uh, Reading the Gospels as a black man, or something like that, um, and this guy was making was saying that the Old Testament is all about <laughs> how do you say it? The Old Testament is all about God <laughs> begging with Israel not to receive the justice that, that they do. <laughs> now, obviously, it's not all about that, but I thought that was an interesting way of putting it. But the guy's name is Esau. That's like who? And he's a he's a pastor, right? I, me, I would be changing my name at some point. Who names the kid Esau? <laughs> I don't know if he grew up in a Christian home or what, but... So Esau despises his birthright. And, you know, God is not obliged, of course, to engage any of us in his plan. But I think he likes to, very much. There's a sense of humor. But you have, yeah, but, but you have, this, you have this person who's obviously going to despise your birthright. All right? Who despises... God's not going to covenant with that person. Now... 
Yeah, I suppose it was the possibility that at some point, but we see his character. Okay, that's not the kind of person that God's going to carry out His plan through. Isaac and Rebecca, um, uh, continuing just to sort of work through the stuff that they're that they're going through. Uh, we have this. So let me get to this next screen here. I'm a little frozen. Hold on. Okay. We have Jacob's own experience with Laban the deceiver, don't we? Jacob, and so I think I think God used Laban again, this evil, this who himself was a huckster, to develop and reveal to Jacob his own character. Okay, and the reason why I state that is we're going to continue to see always God using the choices that man the choices that man makes in a way that serves him. Um, <clears throat> again Walton says about Esau what can we expect from God when we show ourselves unworthy of his blessing by despising the values that comprise our spiritual heritage and I think of the Pharisees and the scribes you know that's why God said the kingdom will be given to somebody else we have this Jacob's ladder remember Jacob's ladder we, where Jacob sees angels going up and down on this ladder or again this, this stairway which again was an ancient way of of seeing the gods, but of course, um, what what God does in this dream is He promises land and descendants. Okay, He promised land and descendants to Jacob now. So the promise is being continued. Made that promise to Abram. He's making that. He's he's, re, he's he's sort of bringing Jacob into this as he's forming and shaping him. He's bringing him in now to the point where he's revealing specifically. And dreams were the classic way that God reveals Himself. That he is going to, he's going to continue to do. He's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to give him a land. He's going to give him a blessing. Okay, but now the still the work isn't done in Jacob, right? Jacob wrestles with God. And this is interesting, isn't it? Um, and again, in ancient thought, it wasn't unusual when somebody was coming into a new territory. The, the gods were thought of as God. So he says that he came into the ford before such and such a city. The fords were places where people would wrestle with the deities they were in charge of that city at times. All right? So it's interesting that they continue to use stuff that happened in the culture and show how God is, is sort of working through that. Um, he changes Jacob's name to Israel. And you recall the significance of naming something, right? To name something, if you go back to... This was, this was part of Adam and Eve's. This was part of Adam's sharing God's authority. Was he, Adam named all of the creatures. He named all the animals. Okay, he named Eve. So God, one of the ways that God establishes authority and demonstrates it is by naming the, the, the right to name something, to give something its identity, to give something its name, so to speak. And that was all part of what it meant initially, again, with Adam to be an image bearer, was to have that same authority of God, to have that, that authority that God was sharing with him, putting his plan in action. <clears throat> and so we have then this... Um, uh, his change of name also represents, which importantly, a change of character, right? God blessed him spiritually. It wasn't, you know, the wrestling match went on all night, but it wasn't the physical. I mean, obviously, the angel could take him on in a moment. All he did was touch his hip and the guy was a mess, right? So it really wasn't a physical thing. It was a spiritual thing going on. But we get the sense that God is working with getting Jacob to submit to him spiritually, to recognize what he is, who he is, 
And so when he's in, 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 it says, what is your name? I am Jacob. I am the deceiver. Okay. And importantly, I think deceit is a form of self-sufficiency. I'm sorry, uh, when you deceive people, when you have to go about, isn't that a form of self-sufficiency? You're depending upon yourself in a lot of ways when you're doing that. Right? J- Jacob asked God to bless him. And that's demonstrating a certain dependency. So we see this interesting change that's taking place in Jacob. He's gone from all this stuff that God has brought him through, from this sort of self-sufficiency that he had came to rely upon. Even in his own, the way that he had to deal with Laban when it was over, um, he asked God to bless him. He asked God to be the one that does that. We can't live, and I think the thing here is, despite the fact that it may leave us hobbled in a lot of ways, we can't live in harmony with God's lordship if we're self-sufficient. I think this is just it's short on technicolor in the life of Jacob. Okay? <clears throat> we come to Jacob's sons now, the twelve tribes, right? And the family is clearly a tremendous mess. Again, the family, despite whatever God's doing, the family is a mess. So we see Joseph is his favorite, and this causes envy, right? In Genesis 37 4, right? Um, read that verse particularly. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak. They could not. <laughs> they could not speak peacefully to him. And so, you know, envy is a terrible thing. But on the other hand, Jacob messed up. He, he, shouldn't, he shouldn't have created that tension in the family. Right? And repeatedly in these Old Testament stories of the patriarchs, we witness God's declared purpose we see the way he's going to do it through one man in the sea and we see those families acting in ways that would we'd be inclined to conclude at least on the surface are in total conflict with God's plan. Right? Man continues to do stuff that shows that this is... And, and, then, and then to make things worse Joseph has these crazy dreams, right? In 37.11 and after he shares these dreams which basically indicate how he's in some way going to rule over them it's in his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. And that's interesting too, isn't it? His father kept that stuff in mind. Mary does the same thing. Yeah, that's an interesting... Yeah. I wonder, why do you suppose, why do you suppose Jacob kept those things in mind? You know, there's a sense in which... I'm sorry? He knew God. Yeah. And I, I... You know, he had dreams too. So I think... I think that... I wonder if he couldn't... If he was thinking God revealed things to him in a dream, which is the way he again in the ancient Near East, that's how God revealed himself. That's how God revealed himself to you often it was in dreams. And now we see uh, uh, Joseph having a dream, and so Jacob was a little bit annoyed, but he kept it in his mind. And I, I can't help but wonder if that boy, wonder what God's shown to him. Wonder what God's revealing to him. That wasn't enough to make him think, Oh well, Jacob's not I mean, uh, Joseph's not really dead. I may have his bloody rag of a coat here in front of me, but he's not really dead. You know, wasn't sufficient to do that. Um, I think it's important to note God has already decided He's going to use Egypt to form a people for Himself, and that's why things are unfolding the way they are. I mean, God had a plan for Egypt way back, you know, because none of this stuff is Plan B. I mean, everything with God is Plan A. <laughs> so I think God, and there's a reason why. I think there's a reason for this as well, which, which we'll touch on. So some good things with Joseph, right? He becomes Potiphar's right hand man. And there's a bunch of things working against Joseph, right? His own brothers, Potiphar's wife, the chief cupbearer, who just blows him off altogether, you know? He just is so excited, he's going he's gonna to mention him, so he gets out there and he lives, and the other guy gets his head lifted off, and 
just completely forgets about Joseph for a couple of years. But what was working in favor for Joseph all this time is God accomplishing his purpose. Even the famine God was using to work in favor for Joseph, which brings his brother to Egypt for food. Right? So we see the goodness of God that leads to repentance in his brothers and his relationship with his brothers. And remember all the different things that were going on as they're going back and forth. Oh, we could go back to Jacob, our father, what are we going to tell him? And, and they even say things and they're like, oh, we, well, we've been found out, right? And, and I think I mentioned in a sermon one time, they've been living with this for all these years. They've been living with this for like 15 years now. On their minds all the time, what they did. What they must have been doing to them. But God is also in the process of working that out in them as well. Right? So, in the, in, in, that's why I say it's the goodness of God, even in the famine, in a sense, that leads to their, that's going to ultimately lead to their, their being exposed. And again, having to deal with their own sin against, jo- uh, against God, against Jacob, and against Joseph. Right? They sinned against all of them. So, <clears throat> uh, so God's also teaching the brothers that they can't control their circumstances and destiny. They use their brother for their own selfish gain. They didn't want him having a superior position of rulership, right? Once again, a rejection of authority. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. A rejection of authority. We've seen going on all the way up until now. That, and I say that because the, the, the Joseph's amazing technicolor dream coat and that culture, that kind of a thing was indicative of authority. This is the person that's in charge. That's why he said, go down and bring me back a report of your brothers. We're just running off being a little snitch and a tattletale. That role was designed for the manager. That's what they did. He was put in charge, in a sense. That's why his brothers were envious. They weren't just envious because, oh, he got a nice coat and we didn't. They did it that way. They do it the way brothers always do. Ah, you look like a sissy in that. You know what I mean? Or something like that to show their envy. You don't kill them because of that. <laughs> uh, so they use their brother. So God's using the brothers to accomplish the establishment of his own kingdom. So we have no idea what's going on in God's unrevealed will, do we? Our kids aren't saved. They stray from God. This has happened. We have no idea. When you look at Genesis, you see a story of all kinds of crazy stuff that's happening that seems to have nothing to do with, with God at all. And yet we have the curtain drawn back for us so we see it. But them in the midst of it, they didn't. And, this, and so we get this key statements that sort of sum all of this up, okay? That sum up everything important sort of in the book of Genesis by seeing what happens with these with these three, these three things here. Um, in 45.5, And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve your life. You sold me here, but God sent me. Okay? Doesn't dismiss them as a result of, of, of their wrongdoing. Okay? Then over uh, seven, in verse 7 to 8, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. He, he, I mean, Jacob must have communicated at some point to Joseph about the blessing that was on the family and, and that all this was... Why, why, why would Jacob say something like, we're going to preserve for you, the family, a remnant on earth? Right? And then finally, the big one, right? This is the big one, isn't it? This is the big one that we all know so well. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear... I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Right? God, so, so he, he says, you intended evil against me. God meant for your evil, because he says God meant it. Meant what? Evil. God meant evil for the ultimate good. Right? 
so, so, so the establishment of the next phase of his promise to Abraham and the seed. God used evil. Everything has to serve God. Again, evil can't thwart God's purposes. It has to serve him. It has to. Even we see it again in the book of Acts, right? So again, God's ex nihilo acts are both spiritual and physical. The evil existed back in the garden. The serpent meant evil against God, but God planned on subjecting that evil intent. Evil intention is made to serve God. Even before the acts that go with that intention, our intent, evil intent, is even used by God. To serve. Why? Because everything will serve God. Everything will serve Him. His purpose. We, that's so important to remember. That's what it is to be sovereign. There is nothing... The God that created out of nothing needs nothing to sustain and maintain His creation but His own self. This is the whole story of what's going on here. That's, that's, that's what happened in the beginning and this is where Genesis ends and it's so important that it ends that way. Well, what we'll continue to see is God is going to establish His kingdom. He's going to rule over His kingdom. He's going to involve people in the process despite the way they fail. Everything is meant to serve God's purpose. Okay? And He's going to do it over a long course of time. Right? So the rest of the Old Testament follows from here. And whatever else happens in the rich stories of people like us, God is accomplishing His purposes. And a, a, a bit of a closing thought on Egypt and their captivity in Israel. Mike Heiser says, The reason for Israel's circumstances, which is the bondage in Egypt, was that it wasn't sufficient that only Israel knew Yahweh was most high among all gods. Israel was in Egypt precisely so that Yahweh could deliver them, thereby conveying this theological message. Part of Israel's captivity was so that God could show his great deliverance. So that God could show he is the God of gods. You know, in, maybe Taro mentioned it in the, in the plagues in general. What's, each one of those plagues was an overthrow of a god of some kind, right? So everything that God is doing, the captivity going into Egypt, all that stuff is going to serve... God is going to sort of keep those people there from being corrupted by the surrounding nations and all the polytheism. That's another thing God did in isolating them off in Egypt. He kept them away from all the polytheistic, with the exception of Egypt, but they were in the midst of but they had their own community, so to speak, in Egypt. God kept them preserved there from the sacerdotalism, that mixture of all other religions that can lead people down a bad path. Jesus sums it up well, didn't he? So, so, just mentioned that God made man in his image, and God's image will be realized. And Jesus sums it up when he says, May God's name be hallowed, may his kingdom come, and his will be done. Right? The, the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name, may your name be hallowed, uh, revered, uh, adored, admired, whatever. May your kingdom come. Right? May your will be done. It's a foregone conclusion. The God's kingdom, God's rulership, all the stuff that we're talking about, we see throughout Genesis, we're going to continue to see God's kingdom rulership, how he's going to do it, what his intent is, that he's all doing all kinds of stuff behind the scenes we don't understand, how man responds to that, and then how God responds to man. When he could just sort of wipe him out. Right? And, it's, and, it, and there's a couple points to get to the sense that he think he's actually going to do that. So that's the importance of Genesis. That we see that God is, the first thing he's revealing is my kingdom, my rule, and he just lovingly brings in creatures, he's got creatures, us, that he's going to use in this whole process. Just bring us into this. Just make us part of who he is and what he's doing. Which we can't think enough about. And yet how we respond to that. Right? How do we respond to the most gracious thing that could ever be done? Right? And what does God do about our poor response to his grace? Right? So, alright, let's have somebody pray for us. Maybe Randy in the back. Would you pray? Close us.
Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this, this study. Thank you, Lord, for uh, how you continue to work in our lives, Lord, and even through evil, Father, you use it in a mighty way, Lord, to open us uh, our eyes and our hearts and our minds to your beauty and to your truth. So we praise you, Father, and thank you for the study, and thank you, Lord, for the, the work that you're doing within us, Lord mm-hmm. Jesus. So use it to prepare us for worship and bless our time together, and may we be exalted in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask in your name. Amen. Amen. Amen.